Like Martin Luther King, I have a dream. I dream that someday all teachers will teach students how to think rather than make them think. I dream that all students will understand how their brain works and use the knowledge to be successful and excel in whatever endeavor they choose. Arizona School Administrator, Jeff Kleck. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies that we can all use for immediate results with our brain in mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being and productivity and launch this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results using the most current brain research to inform our decisions. Our guest today is someone I've mentioned often on this podcast, but one day I realized I know very little about the person who encouraged me to pivot in the direction of neuroscience way back in 2014. Every interview I've ever done, someone always asks me, how did you end up doing a podcast on the topic of neuroscience? And I tell the same story about how an educator urged me to go in this direction many years ago. I'm very intentional about the people I ask to come on the podcast. They're usually someone who's making an impact in the field of health, wellness, and education in some way, or has made an impact on my direction and the work I've been doing over the years And while creating the questions for Dr. Ginger Campbell, who's well known for her podcast, Brain Science, I stopped to think for a moment about how in the earth did I end up where I am today? And I thought about our guest. I never ignore those flashes of insight that interrupt me while I'm working as the connections I've made over the years are the only reason I'm here today working in this field of educational neuroscience and so very passionate about it with this incredible opportunity to think, learn, and create every single day. And I wouldn't have had the courage to move in the direction of neuroscience without the guidance of our next guest, Jeff Kleck, who's now the principal at Valley Christian School in Phoenix. I look forward to talking neuroscience with Jeff, someone I've not seen since he helped me to create my second book, Level Up, A Brain-Based Strategy. On today's episode 246, we'll be speaking with Jeff Clack, and we'll see if we can fill in the blanks of where his passion for neuroscience began and what he's doing now to help educators understand how the brain impacts learning and what he thinks of the future of educational neuroscience in our schools, sports, and workplace environments. Let's welcome my mentor to this field of educational neuroscience, Jeff Clack. Welcome, Jeff Kleck. It's so incredible to see you again. Was it 2014 or 2015 that we saw each other last? Do you remember? Boy, um, probably about, yeah, 13, 14, somewhere in there. I think it was the year after I went to work for AAEC. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So I'm just thrilled to have you on the podcast because like I just 
was talking about, I mention you all the time. You're you're such an integral part for the work that I'm doing. So I appreciate that. No, absolutely. I reached out to you and I mentioned in the backstory that I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it, but I never ignore those flashes of insight that we get. You know, we're working, we're focused mm -hmm. on something. And then you came into my head. I'm like, how in the earth did I get here that I'm asking Ginger Campbell? She's like the podcast hall of fame in neuroscience. How am I designing questions for her? And for a second, I just was like, how did I get here? And I thought it was Jeff Clark. <laughs> and that's when I sent you the email. I'm like, I've yeah. got to have you on the podcast. I can't do this yeah. anymore. So um, can you just begin with where your passion for neuroscience began? Because you surely launched me into this field. Sure. I think um, it's a couple of places. When I was getting my administrative license work, I had a guy by the name of David Korash, and he was a superintendent down in Los Angeles. And he and his wife had started delving into the idea of how to teach people, students, how to think. And I had a, a class with him on uh, instructional theory in college. And that's what started me thinking. One of the things that he said the first day of class is that in order to understand, in order to get through this class, the first thing you need to do is agree with me that making someone think does not teach them to think. And so all throughout the class, he just filled my mind and lit a fire in me for uh, my classroom, because as a classroom teacher, I'd spent a lot of time teaching a content, teaching a standard. But within that, I never really taught kids how to think. And I would get frustrated when I would ask them to think, um, but they wouldn't come up with well-reasoned answers and things like that, because I wasn't teaching them how their brain processes information. I wasn't teaching them how their brain learns. So how would they know anything different than what they've already learned? Um, and then I went, I just started going places, reading, researching on my own, Dr. David Sosa. I went to one of his conferences uh, on how the brain works and um, listened to him and another lady, Janet, um, I forget her last name right now. I have her book on my shelf. Uh, she came and spoke at a community college one time about uh, helping kids learn how to think and how the brain works. So I just, it's been a fascination. I think what one of the things that kind of fascinates me is the concept of a click were response, you know, in that um, the brain will react certain ways and, and if I can get a kid to think something or process something at a deeper level then all of a sudden the brain goes click <laughs> and it winds up and it, it starts taking over the process if that makes sense absolutely and I feel like that's what happened to me when it was like a pivotal moment you're handing me all these books off your bookshelf Right, And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this. You know, this yeah. was like I was looking through David Souza's How the Brain Learns and it was yeah. 
confusing. And yeah. I remember thinking, I remember you said, you don't have to do this. You, But I thought I need to do this. It right. was like right. something was lit inside me that I had to uncover, undecipher this whole thing. So, and I never forgot that you mentioned Carol Dweck to me. You said, you've got to understand Carol Dweck. And I hadn't heard of Carol Dweck before you had mentioned her. And I wrote her name on the back of a piece of paper when I was standing there. And then Carol Dweck's work took off in our schools. So, sure. you know, I'm, I'm just curious, who are you studying now? Because you gave me some really good people to start off with. Where, where are you now? <laughs> Well, I'm not studying any particular person right now. I keep going back to different things. There is one fella, just a second. I got this out so I could look it up so I don't forget his name, but he was dealing with the brain and student behavior, uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. I've got his article here. Uh, hey, guess what? It's Sosa. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's David Sosa. It just says Sosa. So uh, the chapter is called Handling Social Misbehavior. And so he goes a lot into how the brain works in that setting. And I think the other thing I've been doing is just I'm, I'm teaching art now, seventh and eighth grade art. And I've been intrigued by the fact that, you know, when we talk about the brain, the brain likes to reduce things to the to the simplest idea, the simplest picture. And what I've noticed in teaching art to young kids, um, I, I'm working with them to do sketch figures, people that you just scribble. You know, you don't really have a set um, process other than your proportions for a human and, and you scribble. And you let the scribbles take shape and create a human and let it go. Uh, what I find is that a lot of seventh grade students that I have and even eighth grade students, basically they'll draw a person like they're drawing a chalk outline of a murder victim. And it really, I look at that and I'm going, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> and, and basically things are being reduced to the simplest thing that the brain can think of but then they'll put eyes and a nose and a mouth on base and it makes it kind of look like a s snowman or a, you know, outline of a murder victim with an eye and a smiley face. So, um, so when I'm working with kids right now with sketch figures, one of the things that um, I'm trying to get them to do is allow their brain to create optical illusion because uh -huh. in reality that's what we do when we do art a lot of times uh, if you look at the picture here you see a horse okay but in art we are not going to emphasize every detail in that horse because the brain doesn't care about every detail all it cares about is to see the thing that tells it it's a horse and from there everything else falls into place if that makes sense at all in other words if I was painting this painting and I wanted to emphasize something, say that horse's head, that horse's head would have the greatest detail. Over here, there wouldn't be a whole lot of detail because the brain would go, okay, this is what I want to see. That's what the artist wants me to see. So I'm not going to worry about the rest of it. Um, and, and getting kids to break out of that um, 
you know, I'm, a, I'm one, asking them to scribble things into shape. And then the other thing is close looking. Uh, I call it close looking. When we look at something that we want to observe, and this this can this can be anything, a uh, science experiment, uh, a math problem. Uh, the brain wants to simplify things to the simplest term and make it as simple as possible. But the reality is um, it, we need to look at things very closely, which takes work, which takes effort. And you've probably heard me say, as all the brain people that I've studied said, the number one key to improving intelligence, working with the brain is putting out effort. And so um, you talked about it was very hard for you uh, when you first read Sosa and started going into this. Well, it's also difficult for teachers because if you're going to teach um, thinking strategies as a teacher, you run into a couple of problems. It's more mental work for you than you ever thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be willing to put in the mental work. Then the next thing that comes up is, you know you're teaching kids how to think when you ask them or say something in class and they challenge you and they go, why? <laughs> or you correct something and they go, why? Because you've taught them how to think and now uh, their objection, it's not a rebellious objection. It's simply a need, as we would say in brain, uh, brain science, for the brain to complete a thought. There, there has to be a completion um, because the brain does not like incompleteness. So now I get you to thinking, now you're gonna challenge me and ask me why, because your brain said, okay, not I need to complete it. this. So that's a lot of stuff. Well, I never thought or even looked at your background with art. I, I didn't know that was there. And I don't know if you remember back when we were working together that we had a teen that was designing your cover and some of the characters inside. And she had a lot of pushback in school that her anime drawings weren't what the school wanted. And they kept giving her C grades and failing her. And just so you know, the work that she did for the book that you helped me to create got her an all-paid prestigious scholarship at University of Arkansas. Oh, that's she, great. That's is, great. Hey, I'm going to show you something. Yeah. I'll show you something. I'm going to brag a little bit. Yeah. You know, I did sculpture years back, and it was kind of amateurish. And I'm going to teach a sculpture unit in my class this year. So I got back into my sculpture. And if you can, oh, you might not be able to see that guy. In and out. It comes, can you like, yeah, go slowly. I'm trying to turn it so it can be oh, seen. Oh, how cool is that? Pull it back to my face. Oh, it's really hard to see. Yeah. But I, hey, I it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it didn't come out so well on there. But basically, uh, you can see Take it. a picture of it and I'll put it in the video I'll, when I edit. Uh, get a picture of it for me and send it through. Anyway, I was kind of pleased with how that turned out because... Years and years, and the brain just keeps cooking and, and surprise myself, gets better. Well, that's where I had no idea where any of this would go. And this this teen that was like, she she quit the, the school that she was at 
and, you know, started doing some work for us and started being homeschooled and thinking, you know, what am I going to do with my future? And now she's set. She's well on her way. And it all had to do with, you know, the the things that we were doing back there. But um, can you remember, go back to that day that you called me in? Um, you know, I got I got a call that was like, Andrea, you got to go see Jeff Kleck. He's got some feedback for you. And I thought, uh, oh, no. Uh, uh, and, and I worked for Pearson, Jeff. So it wasn't weird that an educator was going to bring me in and say, you know, this isn't going to work for me and this is why. But when it's your work, it's a little bit harder to yeah, take. I was like, yeah. oh, my gosh, I got to I got to do this because this is going to be my growth. But take me to let's go back there. What do you remember about, you know, having to say the difficult thing that no one wants to say and tell this girl, you know, you got to go in a different direction. Tell me what you remember about that day that turned into a huge turning point for me. Right, right. Um, I guess I remember, you know, I read through the book and I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, you know, as it's written, it's it's kind of taking a, a pathway to the right um, and kind of delving into the spiritual side of the brain, which educators don't necessarily or not necessarily concerned with the spiritual side of the brain, so to speak, or what's happening um, with respect to beliefs and feelings and all that kind of stuff. But it just seemed to me like there was promise there if we started looking at okay how does the brain learn how can i improve my my teaching or my product of wanting kids to think if we kind of turn that book that direction and so i think that's where i just you know said as it's written basically um, I, I didn't see as a you know principal how I would be able to jump in behind it 100%. And I think sometimes what happens is just like I said to you, the brain likes to simplify things. And I think a lot of people that may have looked at the book didn't look at it with close eye, close reading. And if you remember, I took that book and I highlighted all kinds of things. <laughs> that was fun. Reminded and, me of uh, I, I kind of felt, I with kind of felt bad for you. That's all right. bad for you. But my heart was, yeah. I think if you turn this and you get information from people that are um, dealing with actual science of the brain and neurology and all that kind of stuff, you'd be on to something. So that was kind of the motivation behind all that. Love, but, it. Uh, Love it. But it's not easy, I, is it? Taking no, I felt, I felt bad for you because, you know, I, I didn't pull any punches and I was, I was just 100% honest with you. And, you know, that's, that's not always easy, especially when you poured your heart. I mean, it's not like, any anytime you write something, you're putting your heart out on paper. And if somebody comes along and steps on it, you know, that's that's not fun at all. Uh, I was trying not to step on it, but you know, you know it all it, it all worked in the right direction. And Jeff, <laughs> it, it, I'm so glad I'm not in the sports industry because 
I see this girl, she's trending on Twitter for putting her neck out into the sports world. Yeah. And then, you know, and I'm seeing all these horrible things written about her. So I'm just glad that I, you know, put my neck out in the field of education and, and I'll take red marks over what this poor girl went through <laughs> on Twitter because there was nothing like it. So I'll stick yeah. to this what field, but um well, if nothing else, I gave you names of the experts to talk to. So there's a bunch out there. So Yep, you got it. And they became good friends over the years. I've interviewed them all and it's it's just amazing. And I actually put a chapter in the book on criticism because I thought it was such a an eye-opening experience for me to go through. I've never actually been critiqued in that way that it that, that I knew it was the right thing and I thought people have to understand how to take it when it's positive that it can right. skyrocket you forward. So Well, you know, I think we have to be careful with it for sure. But to me, you know, if if I love you as a person, then why would I just read through this book and tell you, oh, it's all wonderful, go with it, when in all honesty, I don't really feel that in my heart. You know, when I show, if I look at somebody and I'm really showing love to that person, then I'm going to be honest with that person because to be dishonest to me is a lack of concern, a lack of care, a lack of love. The only way I could really, you know, because let's say I look at it and I say, Ooh, you know, this is not going to make it. And I go, Hey, it's wonderful. Do it. Well, I'm lying to you mm -hmm. and I'm actually hampering the potential for your career. So because I love you, because I like you, because I want what's best for you, I'll give you an honest voice. Now, you don't have to listen to that. You can, a person can say, you're all wet, you're all washed up. I don't want that. And I think we don't show that we like, we actually, to me, when we just flippantly say, go ahead and do whatever you want to, we show dislike, disrespect, hate, as opposed to, eh, let me have an honest conversation with you. And that plays out in all kinds of relationships, from marriage relationships to, you know, relationships as a principal to teacher and different things. Let me have the honest conversation with you. It's not because I don't like you. It's actually because I really like you and I want you to be successful. Love it. I'm so grateful for that moment. And, uh, you know, sitting behind me on this side is is David Souza's How the Brain Learns series. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see. I gave you a set of those, didn't That's I? That's it. That's yours. <laughs> and you're not having it back. I'm like, I have that, that book I refer to all the time. And yeah, it's yeah. In. So uh, it, it sits there. It's always behind me. But yeah. um, I've interviewed him twice. And what was interesting, when I first reached out to Corwin Press, they wanted me to interview some of the younger, newer people that were coming in and I'm like, no, I want David Souza to, to come yeah, on the podcast yeah, because yeah. of the fact that you gave me that book. And so I had to fight to get him. They're like, well, I don't know if he's going to do it. I'm like, well, tell him how important this is. Right. So, you know, he ended up coming on and then I used a lot of his strategies to help my own kids, my youngest, yeah. especially um, yeah. back back. She was learning to read and struggling and I used some of the strategies. So yes. this, this isn't just for the podcast. This is I'm actually implementing this stuff. Right. Exactly. You know, so as you're approaching, um, you, you mentioned it's not easy for your teachers. 
And I just remember thinking like, this is really difficult, but do you ever hear or get any pushback about, you know, the whole reading wars, like the, the, the science versus whole language or, you know, that the brain isn't how we were taught, maybe from the old school people that learned that you sit there and you read the book by reading the book. Right. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't really gotten into a whole lot of that. I mean, much of my work is not so much with, you know, reading. Um, I have talked to teachers about, you know, you need to understand that there's not a reading part of the brain. You know, the, the brain connects, um, I think, uh, uh, I know the two things, Broca's area with um, the other one. Wernicke. Yes. And it, 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 those are about an inch and a half, two inches apart or whatever in the brain, if I understand, if I remember correctly. So in order for someone to read, there has to be a connection between those two places. There's not like nobody can go, oh, here's the reading spot. So... As a result, I just talked to teachers about how difficult it is to make those connections. And I know in Sosa's book, he has strategies for helping make those connections. But other than that, I've most of my time has been spent with, you know, science and now art and different things like that. And then just in general, you know, how to make a student, you know, teach a student to think and how to assign assignments. For example, um, this came from one of the guys I read. Uh, I actually asked him if I could use his material for my teachers, but he wouldn't allow me to do it. Um, so, you know, that's okay. But but the, there was a concept there like in social studies. So in social studies, we commonly teach you, okay, this battle occurred on this date and these people won. Okay. But if we want to teach somebody how to think, then what we begin to do is dissect that. And we say, okay, on this particular day, this battle happened. But create a strategy that would allow the other side to win. And determine if your strategy would allow the other side to win or if their loss was inevitable based on geography and you know whatever decisions that were made so so that takes the whole study of a war or a particular battle out of the realm of here's the date here's who won to a realm of let's get you to process information at a deeper level you know or what if uh what if um all of the math that you do could only be done on a globe you know, so you have a chalkboard globe. What if all the math you do could only be done on this globe? What would be same? What would be different? So anyway, there's just things like that that I spent my time working with teachers on or talking to teachers about. Well, so Jeff, you've spent a lot of your time in education as an educator, but what about- 24 what, years. 24 years. 44. Wow. 44. Mm -hmm. 44. Oh my 44 gosh. years, yes. So then what about when you take off your teaching hat and switch to being a student? Can you think about something you've learned over the years about the brain that's helped you and your family maybe? Probably right now, um, as I'm working with teachers and based on, again, Sosa's study of, of, of uh, what I just read, I forget what it was, social management, 
handling social misbehavior um, and getting teachers and even myself as an administrator that deals with misbehavior and things like that to understand um, how the thalamus takes in all the information except for smell, all the sensory information except for smell. And that kids, the, um, the limbic area re, for emotions has developed by age 10 to 12, somewhere in there. So it's fully developed. Um, and now I've got seventh graders that have a fully developed emotional system. But what hasn't developed, and it doesn't develop until about age 22 to 24, is the orbital frontal cortex, which is a breaking mechanism, a, um, a analyst analyzing mechanism for anything the thalamus sends. And, and if things are going right to the amygdala, which happens in 12 milliseconds, um, people are just whoo, reacting quickly, which you want that in certain cases. Um, but you also like to tell the teachers, we teach behavior. Because if you look at a two-year-old, two the impulse buy rack at Fry's was made for the two-year-old. <laughs> because the two-year-old walks by the impulse buy rack and they go, I want candy. You, mom says, no, you can't have candy. Then comes the temper tantrum. Well, why is that? That's because the, the information has gone right to the amygdala and the baby is reacting in a manner that it perceives, or the two-year-old, that is socially acceptable for its age, which is where then teaching comes in because we teach so that students can, as they develop that uh, orbital frontal cortex, can begin to put a break on that uh, system, that emotional system that goes right to the amygdala and goes, hey, this is how you're going to react. This is like, you know, your teenage daughter, you say something to her about, hey, you need to pick up your room. And before you go out and she goes, whatever, you know, because the brain's telling her that's an appropriate way to react. And so we spend a lot of time actually um, teaching behavior. And, you know, if you look at Sosa and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, it's perfectly acceptable because the orbital frontal cortex develops through teaching and it makes decisions based on what it's learned. Uh, short of there's all kinds of things, you know, that delay that from drug abuse to, you know, abuse, uh, physical abuse, that kind of stuff. But, you know, we, we still continue to work on that. And I think that's one of the things, I guess, as an administrator uh, dealing with issues with kids that I constantly have to be looking at. Is there something that is, is uh, curtailing the development of the orbital frontal cortex? How can I teach something that will help a student be successful later on in life? Yeah, that was a huge aha moment for me, Jeff, when, when I look back to when I was a teacher and I only lasted a year at the Toronto District School Board. I had a behavioral class and you know, my students were throwing chalk brushes when I was trying to write stuff on the board. It was like a nightmare. Yeah. And I would turn around, I'd be like, sit down right. and, and yell at them thinking right. like, because no one taught us anything about their brains or how to manage a class. So it, it was so different and such a huge aha moment. And that whole pick up your clothes thing happened this morning before my kids are going to right. school, pick up your clothes and right. 
you know, and the yelling just doesn't do anything because right. they don't listen. So, you know, just thinking about all that, how many kids do you have? I know they're grown now, but. Uh, my, I, I have four actually, uh, two of my own and two stepchildren. My oldest son is Christopher Kleck. Um, he is the chief of spinal surgery at University of Colorado Medical School. Uh, then I, my second boy, he is a business analyst for PXG Golf. And then I have a stepson who is, is just a success story like you cannot believe. He was born with Asperger's. Um, his mom was told that he would be in a home for the rest of his life. Uh, she looked at the doctor and she said, nope, that's not what God has planned for my child. So she immediately went into America West, quit her job as a flight attendant and spent the next few years uh, working with her child. And when people talk to her, um, you know, people that just say, well, the school is going to take care of it and all that kind of stuff. She'll say, no, the school is a tool and they'll work with your child 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a half hour out of the day but you need to be responsible to take care of that. So he would come home from school and she'd go to this doctor for speech therapy. She'd go to this doctor and this doctor. She spent a lot of time um, working with him to her credit. And she's just an awesome lady for that. And this young man who was um, supposed to be in a home for the rest of his life is living in Seguin, Texas in his own house with his own car working for Continental Automotive. Uh, he's just been promoted. He's getting raises. And uh, now, um, you know, it's tough sometimes uh, with folks that have Asperger's to find a mate. But he's found a girl that just loves him and she completely understands the whole spectrum thing. And I mean, his life is just flying. But it was really because his mom um, and I'm really proud of her quit her job and did not rely on the school system to take care of her son. She made sure she trained her son up so he could have a life. And then my fourth son, he is a worship pastor at one of the Sun Valley churches here in Gilbert. Well, that's awesome, Jeff. I knew that uh, I could see from your background on Valley Christian School a little bit about your family, but um, did you use this brain stuff with your kids when you were raising them? You know, I, I didn't use a whole lot of it. I would do uh, some of the things, um, you know, like Sosa or actually uh, Diane Halpern talked about in her book. Um, you know, I did simple things like when they were younger, we'd go through the drive through window and I'd say, OK, we just bought, you know, whatever, three, four Big Macs for $3.99. How much am I going to have to pay? Yeah. You know, in Oregon, I didn't have to calculate tax. And so I would get them to think about math in different ways, you know, like, well, round that up to $4, right? And there's a penny off of each $4 unit. So you're talking about $12 and all you got to do is take away four cents from that, right? Yep. So I would do that kind of stuff with them. I would give them nonsense riddles, like, uh, and, and we would talk and just have discussions about it. Um, I don't know if this was teaching them how to think or more making them think, to be honest with you, but um, um, I'm trying to remember the riddle, one of the riddles we used to do off the top of my head. Um, if all the world were apple pie and all the seas were ink and all the trees were bread and cheese, what would we have to drink? 
And so, you know, just kind of work it through some of that stuff. Um, That's fun. My mom used to make me memorize like poems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. things like that but that but you're right it, it makes you think if you give them a riddle or ask them a question like how many grains of sand are on this beach and they right just be like, what yeah 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 oh, yeah smart. so there's things like that i did again I, you know um whether or not it's teaching them how to think or making them think i i don't know but what about what about weren't you a football coach at i was time? yeah 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 I what did. about for athletes what how would you make an athlete think in a different way as you were coaching them? Yeah. So a lot of times as coaches, we will throw out a play and, you know, okay, you go here, you go here, you go here. Um, for me, uh, working with PE teachers and even in the coaching, what I wanted to delve into was strategy as opposed to just doing this and just blocking this person, I wanted, I wanted people to see a strategy behind what they did. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we running this play? What is the strategy? So there's game strategy that often is reserved in the coach's head, but I always like to share that game strategy with the students. Um, and then kind of translate that into, um, you know, body actions or the reason we're running a pass route or, you know, the brain likes to reduce things to simplest terms. So if you're an athlete and you're going out on a pass pattern, your opponent, his brain is trying to reduce things to the simplest term, you know, and, and term. So what can you do to upset that? What can you do to confuse his brain? Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. So that's, really that's kind of stuff I try to invoke and try to do. Well, that's fun. And it, it doesn't take too much time to do have a switch like that, whether you're a parent going through the fast food window and saying, add this all up or right. classroom. It, it just takes a little bit of, of thought before. Right. Yeah. Take some thought on your part for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what about your vision for educational neuroscience in the future? Where do you think this is all going? Mm. Boy, I know where I would like it to go, where it's going. Um, maybe a little controversial for your show because... I think what we're beginning to do is we're beginning to reduce things to feelings. If I feel a certain way, then that's real. Um, but again, we are back to the thalamus going right to the amygdala and saying, uh, you're threatened. You got to react. Mm -hmm. um, somebody said something. You've got to react. And it seems like in the public world, we are spending a lot of time, starting to spend more time on the reaction to a feeling rather than complete understanding that um, our feelings can be deceptive. 
and the brain likes to reduce things to the simplest term. For example, you say something, I'm offended. Um, well, maybe what you said wasn't intended to be offensive. Maybe we all make mistakes. It came out the wrong way, but immediately it went to your brain, I'm offended, mm -hmm. which means it had to have bypassed the orbital frontal cortex, which would cause you to go, well, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Was I really a was the intent to offend or was there something else behind all of this? And so it's kind of like we're rushing to go to the amygdala. Um, we, you know, if you think about it, uh, Sosa said people with phobias, a true phobia, bypass the orbital frontal cortex and they go right to the amygdala and react as if they're, they're afraid of uh, something's going to happen to them. They're afraid. Mm -hmm. And we have, we've kind of labeled things phobias that aren't really phobias. I mean, not in the truest sense. And it's kind of this, I don't know, it's kind of this whole, let's go right to the feeling. Let's go right to the limbic area and determine immediately without running it through the orbital frontal cortex that Somebody wanted to offend me. Somebody said something wrong. Somebody, therefore, they're phobic. Therefore, they're attacking me. Uh, therefore, they're, and it just yep. seems to be, as I'm listening to some of my teachers that are still in the school system, I guess that would be my fear, is that Applying brain science is difficult and it's hard and it's work, to be honest with you. It's not paperwork. It's not typing work. It's brain work. To be a teacher that's going to teach this way, you have to think. And thinking is hard. And like I said, everybody that, that I've ever heard talk about getting smarter, the number one word is effort. And if we don't want to put effort into our thinking and effort into our analyzing, then what we're going to do is we're just going to allow the thalamus to send something in 12 milliseconds to the amygdala, and we're going to react to that without putting brakes on what we react to. I hope I said that in a way that, you know, even the fact that I'm saying, I hope I said that in a way that, you know, nobody gets upset about it is, is. I know what, what you're saying. Proof, yeah. It to me that yeah. we're, we're headed a wrong path. So First. when I was interviewing Dr. Ginger Campbell and thinking of you, I asked her what has stuck out as the biggest thing she's learned from hosting a, a neuroscience podcast since 2006. And she said just that. It was that we all have different perceptions. So as a, a doctor, she, someone would come in and tell her a problem and she might think it's a different way because she's thinking about the problem in a different way. And so just like you talked about with the optical illusions, you know, mm -hmm. we think therefore we're wrong. We have to kind of question everything that we're thinking and not right. jump to a conclusion with anything. Right. Right. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Is that correct? You're correct. Saying yeah. that, that we just have to be careful with where we're going, what we're thinking, um, right. when we react to people. For me, I just wanted to kind of get your your final thoughts here. Is there anything that's important that I haven't asked you on this topic since you were my teacher back in the day? 
Have I missed anything that's important? No, I, I don't think so. I think right now the brain science is pretty solid. Um, I, I would have, let me just a second here. Um, I think, did I share with you uh, Janet Zadina's name? You know, you must have because I followed her and okay. yeah, she's definitely one of the leading beginners, but I yeah. have not interviewed her. So she's yeah. definitely someone, yes, you did. You, you mentioned. Okay. So yeah, I mentioned a lot of names and you know, there are a lot of people out there. Um, you know, uh, I, don't, I know Dr. Korash is retired. He was the superintendent of Lake Oswego School District. I know he's retired, but he was really big. I mean, he lit the fire in me. So, you know, there's some people, but as far as what we know right now, there's more stuff coming out, more stuff that we're learning. Um, but what we know right now as a basis or a foundation is fairly solid. It's been around for quite a while. Uh, people, you know, I told you about Dweck, but before Dweck, you know, 10, 15 years before Dr. Torash Sosa, they were already talking about the difference between a fixed mindset and, and um, uh, a growth mindset. They just weren't using those words. So it's been around for a long time. Um, you know, I wish, I wish, I wish um, it would have taken off more sooner, but um, hey, it is what it is. Yep, but um, Jeff, I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on the podcast, but also for lighting the fire under me all those years ago, because it really set me up for this. I can't even tell you the people I've met, the project, yeah. like you just have no idea what you did for me with that moment that you said, here, take this book. Here, and here. That let me fun. talk to you about something and yeah. that tough moment uh, when you reflect back i'm glad i was honest with you thank you couldn't have had it any other way but i want to thank you so much for that and for your yeah. influence i'll always be grateful and if you do publish something in the future i want to have you back on because i know there's a book in you you've got a, I, <laughs> although i have all your notes i still yeah. have a bunch of your handwritten notes that you gave oh, me. Oh, you still have the book with the handwritten notes? I have the book with the red pen. Uh-huh, okay. And I also have your handwritten notes you gave me where you oh, were talking yeah, yeah. about the fight, flight, and freeze, and you talked about the, the airplane going over the head. I remember everything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. One of those pivotal moments that you don't forget anything. You're like, oh my goodness, this is, life is going to change from here. Well, I'm either going to, I remember. I thought, you remember, but because there was emotion there, right? When there's emotion, right. I thought I'm either going to cry in front of this guy or I'm going to do something. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I, I want to thank you so much uh, for You're coming well. on the podcast for your time. And I'll let you get back to your students. I know okay. they're here. In, my in pleasure. The but thank you, Jeff. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 